Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have a very, very special guest, uh, Dr. Vern Poitras. He is a distinguished professor of New Testament and biblical interpretation and systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary uh, in Philadelphia, where he's taught for 44 years. If you were to look at my bookshelves, you would see a giant section of just Dr. Poitras's books, uh, along with uh, another section of, of Dr. Frame's books. I've learned a ton from these two gentlemen. Um, their, their concepts, their perspectives are in my head. It's how I see the world. And so this is a huge privilege for me to have him on. We're going to be talking about his brand new book, The Mystery of the Trinity, A Trinitarian Approach to the Attributes of God. So without further ado, Dr. Poitras, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this is uh, really exciting. So um, just initially, maybe, you have this new book, The Mystery of the Trinity, and it's our background there. It's this blue one here. And you also, in 2018, I believe, came out with Knowing in the Trinity, and that yeah. is uh, How Perspectives and Human Knowledge Imitate the Trinity. And they're both from uh, PNR. I wonder, for, for those who are um, who are thinking about buying these books, how, how do these two relate to each other? Well, they're both about the trendy. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, there is uh, there is some uh, slight sense in which the uh, the second one builds on the first. Mm. Uh, but the first one, uh, knowing the trinity, is looking at uh, perspectives that we use mm-hmm. as human beings, and finds that in our human knowledge, there are many reflections of the Trinity. Mm. So I'm trying to explain why there are triads of perspectives that are mysteriously reflective of the Trinity. Uh, In the second book, the more recent one, The Mystery of the Trinity, it's a different issue completely, at least on the surface. Namely, how do we deal with the attributes of God without falling off um, the edge of a cliff into problems. Mm-hmm. There's two directions that people have historically fallen into problems. Uh, one direction is the feeling that, that none of our language really reaches God. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with the God being uh, a, a, a darkness, uh, an unknown thing, at least uh, uh in his depths, you can see his. People would admit you can see his works. Yeah, his actions. But, you, but yeah, but but the danger is that you become so skeptical. You become skeptical of whether we can we can say true and know true things about God. Yeah. The other direction is that we bring God down to size, so to speak, and we make him like a man, uh, except blown up large. So. Mm-hmm. So he knows more than we do, friends, of which he does, right? He knows more than we do, but we think of him as a super brain rather than realizing that his uniqueness, he's unique in the way that he knows. He not only knows everything, but uh, he knows it in a unique way because he is the original. He is the creator. Yeah. 
Yeah, amen. So uh, in this book, in this new one, The Mystery of the Trinity, uh, you use these three strands in thinking, uh, which you employ from the, the history of the church. Uh, and these three strands are classical Christian theism, the Trinity, and biblical theology in order to think about the, the divine attributes. Can you, uh, can you explain those for us, uh, th- those three strands which you appropriate? Right. Well, classical Christian theism is my name. It's, uh, others have used it, too, to describe a centuries-old uh, tradition of thinking about God and his attributes. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, it's mostly good, I think, uh, because it's mostly based on the Bible. Hmm. Uh, uh, and the Bible is the, the very word of God. So the Bible tells us who God really is. Amen. And so people have meditated on things like God's uh, eternity, on his omnipresence. He's everywhere present. His omnipotence. He's all powerful uh, uh, attributes like those, which I think... Uh, are taught in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So that's the good side. But there's a there's a more problematic side in that sometimes people got off into reasoning through what God must be, yeah. uh, what must be true of a perfect being, for instance. There's even a whole tradition in modern theology called perfect being theology, mm-hmm. which attempts to, to establish by uh, rational reasoning, what attributes a perfect being would have. Well, well, I believe God is a perfect being, and I believe in, in some of the attributes that, that people derive there. But the trouble is that you're, you're presuming to be able to know God independent of the Bible many times. Mm-hmm. And that's dangerous. I mean, sometimes people come to the right conclusions, but sometimes not. Yeah. At least in my estimation, because of course, general there is a thing as general revelation. God is revealed in the things He has made, mm-hmm. uh, and He's clearly revealed. His everlasting power and deity, if I may quote from Romans one, are clearly revealed in the things He has made. The problem is not with the uh, character of God and how He shows Himself, but it's mm-hmm. with us because we are fallen creatures. Yeah. And we tend to make God in our image. And that's one reason why we need the Bible. But I think there's another reason, too, that even from the beginning, even before sin, Mm -hmm. God intended that his verbal communication with us would be uh, a central aspect of communion between himself and and us. He spoke to Adam Mm -hmm. before ever there was a fall. He gave him specific instructions. And uh, there would have been more, I think, although, you know, it's kind of speculative beyond a minimal point, but there would have been a continuing communion. If you think about personal communion, even between people, a lot of it depends on words. Yeah, It's, of course, richer than that, but uh, words and communication in, in language are very, very important. And it is so, I believe, with God. So even apart from the fall, but of course, the fall makes it worse for us because we have an innate tendency to suppress the knowledge of God, to distort it, to make kind of idols in our own image, even if it's only in our thinking rather than making literal statues. Yeah. So, oh, so that makes. Just, I wonder can, um, if I could jump in about um, the, the the curse on nature, and uh, uh, now we have death and uh, destruction. 
hurricanes. Um, is, is that also uh, an aspect of why we need uh, revelation? Because you know, you could look at a at a praying mantis, and you know, the female praying mantis cuts off the head of her husband and and eats it, and you say, oh, well, maybe God is like that, you know, and you reason this way. Um, what? Why would? Why does the curse? Um, does it mess with general revelation such that it's it's twisted in a way? Well, I, the revel- general revelation is fine. Okay. <laughs> I think it's, but it's different mm. after the fall because the wrath of God is revealed. Okay, yeah, and, and it's hard to sort all that out and to think, well, if God is wrathful, if He's put things in that that are showing human suffering, mm-hmm. and what kind of God is He? And unless you have the Bible to stretch it, straighten you out, you may think that's because he's an evil God. Well, no, it's because we're evil and he's warning us of judgment to come. Yeah. Jesus does that in talking about the uh, the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. It was uh-huh. a, a terrible, unjust thing that Pilate did. And people presumed that they were greater sinners than everybody else. So they were trying to read although they were they were people who were heirs to the Old Testament, but they were trying to read what was going on in the world. And Jesus says they weren't greater sinners, but he says, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. So I think, I think that, though it's not popular to say so, uh, hurricanes and, and tsunamis and other things are warnings mm. to us to repent or we will perish too. Yeah, likewise. So there's something positive to be learned, but you're going to see it properly only if if God is opens your eyes and straightens out your heart. And yeah. we desperately need Christ then yeah. to be our Savior and to reconcile us back to God so that we can know him the way we ought to. Amen. Okay, that's really helpful. Thanks for that. So so we have the first strand of, of classical Christian theism, and now the, the second strand is the Trinity. I wonder um, if you could just... It, the, the the most mysterious doctrine, you know, the the richest doctrine in all of Christian theology. But could you give us a, a an understanding? What what is the Trinity for for the listeners who are uh, confused? Yeah, God is three persons. One mm-hmm. God, three persons, each of whom is fully God. The yeah. Father is God. The Son, Jesus Christ, is God. The Holy Spirit is God, and they are also distinct from each other. And you're right. It's important to emphasize that this is a mystery. It's not fully penetrable mm. by human understanding, simply because we're not God. Yeah. There's nobody. There's no adequate model. Let's put it within the created world, because God is not in the created world in that way. He's a he's a creator. Yeah. Amen. Well, thanks. Oh, that, that that's really uh, really helpful and simple. And we'll we'll get into that a little bit more. But then uh, we have this third strand uh, in thinking through the attributes of God and and its biblical theology. Uh, wh- what do you mean by by biblical theology here? Yeah, it can mean several things. But what I mean by it is an attention to the progress of revelation mm. and the uh, progressing unfolding of more and more. Uh, and the deeper uh, uh, revelation of who God is, the climax being in Jesus Christ himself. So I mentioned that because the attention to the Bible in that aspect is <clears throat> has been more fully developed uh, within the last 
century or so. It started largely with Gerhardus Voss, who emphasized this uh, possibility of looking at the Bible in terms of the progress of Revelation rather than simply as a completed book. If you look at it as a completed book, then you say, well, now we're doing systematic theology. What does the Bible as a whole teach? But he looked at that unfolding progress of Revelation, and then it's possible also to look at particular themes. So what I do in this book on the Trinity is to use the resurrection of Christ mm-hmm. as a particular, it's a it's an actual event in history, but it's also a kind of window that reveals who Jesus is and it reveals who God is because God shows his power, he shows his justice, uh, he shows his purposes in history through that one event in a climactic and definitive way. So uh, it's actually an interesting starting point for expounding the attributes of God. Hmm. Uh, I haven't seen it done <laughs> that way, but but if we do believe, as we should, that Jesus Christ is a climactic revelation of the Father, then it is possible to see the attributes of God through his life and work. Now, you have to be careful there because he's not only fully God, but fully man. Yeah. And the two are not to be confused. Yeah. But granted that, you can find confirmation of other teachings uh, about the attributes of God when you look at the resurrection. For instance, uh, God's absoluteness. Mm-hmm. That's one of his attributes from all eternity. It's there, but it's it's spectacularly revealed in the resurrection of Christ because only God has the absolute power to bring life from where there isn't life. Yeah. Uh, so it's a reminder, it's a confirmation of what is taught in other verses, sort of more generally, but it's there in the resurrection. And clearly God's infinite power is also exhibited there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can go on and, you know, attribute after attribute, some more obviously than others, are displayed in the resurrection of Christ. We're not so used to doing, looking at the resurrection that way. Uh, but biblical theology encourages us to see that it is the the major kind of the fulcrum of all of history. It's the transition from the old order to the new order uh, that is not subject to death. And of course, yeah. Christ is at the center of it. Yeah. Well, that that's what was so interesting when I picked up the book to start reading. Uh, and I saw these, these the first two strands, I go, okay, that makes sense. And then the, the biblical theological strand, and you're looking at Christ, I was like, how is he going to bring absoluteness uh, and, and the, the resurrection, and the, yeah, the resurrection of Christ? I thought there's no way I don't get how he's going to do it. And it was so cool to see you went through absoluteness and infinity, immensity and eternity. And I thought that would be so cool for our listeners um, to to hear. And and you, you went through absoluteness and infinity. How about immensity? You know, like Christ is this man, this God man. But in the resurrection of Christ, like how, how do we how can we how can the resurrection of Christ help us understand uh, the doctrine of immensity? And actually, real quick, can you can you explain to the listeners what what immensity is? Yeah, immensity means uh, that God hasn't is not limited by time and space, mm. uh, but pre- preeminently, it's mostly focused on on space in this case. Mm-hmm. So, 
uh, he he fills the whole the entire universe. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that he's spread out so that one part of him is here and the other part of him is there. It's all of God is present at all points in space, which is again a mystery. You mm-hmm. know, you can't compare it to any created thing that would be spread out in space. Now, uh, what about the resurrection? How does that apply? Well, the resurrection is a resurrection of Christ's body, which is mm-hmm. uh, it is an or, is an ordinary human body, right? It's mm-hmm. it has uh, spatial boundaries, but the effects of the resurrection extend to people in all times and all places, yeah. right? So the, God's being present in all places is displayed in the fact that this resurrection is something yeah. that affects the whole world and eventually is going to be the foundation for the new heaven and the new earth. So it's going to be a comprehensive uh, uh, renewal uh, of the present heaven and earth. And and that involves God's immensity, his ability to be there and to renew everything. Yeah. That's, that's so fantastic. And and uh, I think it's a really creative way to think through this, but actually a really helpful in, in biblical way as well. I, I might expect it from uh, like a Bardian who wants to only, you know, they, they're almost myopically focus on the incarnation. Uh, but but from a, a good Vantillian, you know, this is really interesting to see that uh, you, you're just looking at the phenomena of Scripture and saying, let's let's make let's show how the Bible actually uh, gives us these classical Christian doctrines rather than having to um, just only find them in, in Greek philosophy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I really think that the Bible has to be our source, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't agree with Bart. He right. he has things that where he seems to say that the Bible is the Word of God, but then he denies that it's right. propositionally without error. So you really are left high and dry, even though he seems to say a lot of orthodox things. Right. So, so I want to be want to emphasize the fact that we have to base ourselves on what God tells us in the Bible. What he tells us in the Bible is not simply about the incarnation of Christ, though that's essential for our salvation, but about the death and resurrection of Christ, which is where the salvation is really definitively accomplished. But he also tells us that Jesus Christ existed as the second person of the Trinity, even before his incarnation, and the followers of Bart sometimes don't emphasize that. They don't get into that because they want everything to be related to the incarnation. Well, the incarnation displays who God always was. And mm-hmm. So you can't, you know, you, it, you're putting attention between two things that aren't meant to be intention. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Uh, one more uh, uh, attribute before we, we move on. How, how does... Um, how does the resurrection of Christ help us understand or give us a, a deeper understanding of eternity, of God's eternity? Right. Well, that's related to the fact that you can see that the resurrection isn't just a weird, unusual event. Mm-hmm. It's something that was prophesied in the Old Testament yeah, and that God had planned before the foundation of the world. So you're getting into the fact that God is not restricted in time. And you're also getting, if you look carefully at the resurrection, the resurrection is the foundation for our justification and our salvation and our renewal. What about the people in the Old Testament? 
they had to be renewed and justified on the same basis that we have to, which means the effects of the resurrection, as it were, extend backward. Now that's mm-hmm. highly mysterious. You know? <laughs> how can how can anybody be justified? How can anybody have the power of the the renewal of the spirit at work in them before Christ has come mm-hmm. and has actually accomplished the things that are the basis for that renewal. The answer is because God had planned it from the beginning yeah. and because he's eternal, right? So he's not subject to time. And so the, the resurrection can count for both times past in the Old Testament and times future for us, yeah. right? We're not back in the first century, but right. we're still able to enjoy the fruits of Christ's victory in the first century. Yeah. Man, that's so great. I, I love that. You, you guys go get this book because it's so fascinating that Christ's incarnation r- helps us think through the attributes of God. And we don't, we are given the resources in scripture and actually, you know, through a, a gifted theologian showing us those, but that we're able to use the resources that God's given us rather than trying to, you know, have to appropriate the Greeks and blindly kind of kind of reach out through uh, natural revelation. Uh, we, we have the resources in special revelation to think through these things, which is so fantastic. Uh, Dr. Poitras, I wonder, um, I, I want to talk about simplicity, the doctrine of simplicity, and um, maybe, maybe why is it important um, to hold on to simplicity? When we have so many modern Christian philosophers and even theologians saying, we need to just let go of this doctrine. Right. Well, it very much depends what somebody means hmm. by it. Uh, and the, the term is a puzzling term if you don't understand that it's become a technical term in theology. It doesn't mean that God is simple to understand the way uh, two plus two is equal to four, right? You can say, well, that's a simple arithmetic problem, right? That's not what is meant. What is meant is that God doesn't have parts. Yeah. He can't, and and the Trinity, you see, there, there can be an easy error there. Yeah. The, the three persons of the Trinity are not three parts of God, each of which is a third of God. That's blasphemous mm-hmm. because it's in the, the Bible, it's clear that each person is is God, not a part of God. And God can't be cut up because he is absolute. There's nothing behind him, and there's no way in which he could cease to be who he is. So uh, simplicity means he doesn't isn't decomposable into parts. But also even conceptually, that God has all the attributes he has, and the attributes like eternity, for instance, or omnipotence. Those attributes are not something behind God that exists before he exists and then defines uh, by its own meaning what God is. That would mean that there was something more absolute than God himself, namely the concepts that were at least logically prior to him. So we got to avoid that kind of thing. And I think the Bible, though it doesn't use this vocabulary, the implication of God being absolute is, no, there can't be anything prior to him. There can't be more anything more ultimate than he is. Right. So, so that means it's an important idea. And it's important in modern times, too, because some of the philosophers have postulated 
let's say, an abstract concept of omnipotence, mm-hmm. right? And so you get into the problems like, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Right. And what's happening there is you take an abstract idea of omnipotence, of being able to do anything, anything that at all, and but that's not the definition you should start with. You yeah. should start with God, right, and who he is and say his omnipotence is his ability to do whatever is consistent with his character, yeah. whatever is consistent with who he is. And he can do anything that he wills to do, but what he wills to do is always consistent with who he is. And he is logically harmonious, you see. So the answer to the rock problem is no, because God can't deny himself. He can't be inconsistent with himself. And he is the very source of of, uh, human uh, logic as a reflection of his self-consistency. Yeah. So that's an example of simplicity. But now people get into the reverse problem. They think, oh, if there, if everything is defined so that everything is one, everything is a unit, mm-hmm. then there are no distinctions at all at God. Right. And so you could use it to deny the Trinity, mm-hmm. uh, which is wrong. <laughs> Right. I think I I hope you not only I know you understand, but I think our listeners need to see, look, you have to start with God. You have to accept that he is who he is Mm -hmm. and not try to impose our own preformed ideas of what he must be like. So there's a way of using simplicity destructively. But I'm saying, how do you know that God is simple in that particular way? You got to listen to him. You got to respect who he is. And he reveals himself both as one God who is absolute and as three persons, each of whom is absolute. Yeah. I think that's that's so um, that's such a helpful point to say we have to listen to God and, and hear what he says because if we're if we are reasoning in abstraction, then we're gonna to come to all sorts of problems because well it doesn't make sense to me or this is how I would think. But he's speaking to us and says, Here's here's who I am, here's how you are to think about me. And uh, and and then from there we take the, the phenomena of his revelation and we and we reason through and we think through uh, analogically uh, uh, in in relation to his word, uh, Doctor Poitras. I wonder if you like the terminology uh, that Van Til uses about absolute personality. Do you find that helpful, or, or, or do you use that yourself? Um, not very often, but I think it is useful okay. because. Um, the autonomous people trying to be reasoned about themselves tend mm-hmm. to fall into one of two camps. Either they have an absolute, which they make impersonal, it's right. distant and it's practically unknowable, or they have a personal God, but he's, he's all too human. For instance, the Greek, the, the Greek, uh, Greek multiplicity of gods, mm-hmm. They were kind of human beings blown up large, and they they did immoral things. They were not worthy of worship. So that's an example of personal gods, plural, right? They're fully personal. We can understand that we can understand them all too well. They're just like us, and they're unable to save us because, you know, they're— and and the Greek philosophers did see, I think rightly saw, that these gods are not— 
worthy of imitation mm -hmm. and they and skeptical even did they actually exist so that's one side and the spiritists again you have a spirit world you affirm that there's all kinds of of spirits out there that you can contact but they're finite spirits they didn't make the whole world from nothing so that's an example of personalism without the absolute yeah. And Islam is an example of an absolute that's pretty impersonal. You can't have a personal relationship with the Islamic God. Right. It's distant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. And and so in in wanting to uh, wanting to stay on the road and not fall into the ditch of of like a monism or fall into the the opposite ditch of like a a, a pantheism or a, or a, a polytheism or something like that, you talk about um, you use the the theological doctrine of coherence uh coherence i wonder um can you explain wh what what do you mean by coherence and how does that help us with uh trinity and simplicity yeah i think you're never going to be able to get beyond mystery that's important to keep right out front yeah uh, but the question remains how do you see a harmony between god's absolute oneness yeah. it's only one god and it's taught all the way through the scripture, including the New Testament. I mean, sometimes people think, oh, there's one God in the Old Testament and there's three in the New Testament. No, no, no. It's, a, it's, it's one God all the way through. And Jesus uh, affirms that uh, unity of God. He quotes from Deuteronomy. So yeah. there's one God. How do you see the harmony between that and the three persons? Well, the doctrine of coherence is saying that each of the persons indwells each of the other persons. Mm. John 17 has a number of verses where Jesus talks about the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Mm -hmm. And elsewhere in that upper room discourse, he talks about the Holy Spirit being sent and the Holy Spirit would dwell in you. And through the Holy Spirit, we find that the Father and the Son dwell in the individual Christian. So you put it all together and you find that each of the persons of the Trinity is in the other person, yeah. well, other two persons. And that's mysterious too. Right. But it means that though the persons are distinct, they're not separable, mm. right? They, they always act together, though, again, only the Son became incarnate, but the right. Holy Spirit and the Father were involved in the work by which Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. So, and the resurrection of Christ, similarly, only Christ and his physical body was resurrected, but it's, you see the power of the Father and the, of the Spirit uh, operating yeah. right there. And in the uh, miracles of Jesus too, uh, Jesus talks about the Father who dwells in me does his works. Uh, so that's, again, showing the doctrine of coherence. It's the Father dwelling in the Son. So the works that you see when Jesus was in his earthly ministry are the works of the Son, but they are also the works of the Father, and they are works of the Spirit as well, because you remember that the Holy Spirit was sent to Jesus uh, in his baptism. Yeah. There was a symbolism of that, equipping him to do the work uh, of ministry, yeah, and and uh, Doctor Poitras was the was the Spirit sent by the Father and the Son? 
Well, at the time of the incarnation, you would, the main thing is you see that, or in the baptism, you see the Spirit coming from the Father to the Son. But the, the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to believers in mm. the book of Acts uh, when you see that Jesus, having received from the Father uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, has poured out this which you see in here. That's in Acts 2, verse 33 yeah. or so. I thought we could just give a little jab towards our Eastern Orthodox friends listening. <laughs> the, the uh, yeah. Um, so, Dr. Porch, I want to move on to analogy and theology, and, and this is something that that you've been really helpful in in helping me understand. Uh, and especially when I would go back and read uh, Van Til, um, but but you and Dr. Frame have have helped me understand a little bit more about analogical thoughts and uh, analogical uh, predication. Um, in your book, you talk about God and anthropom anthropomorphism. Uh, I always have a hard time with that word. But can you help us understand uh, the relation between anthropomorphic language and, and uh, analogy and how, how we're able to, to think through um, yeah, the, the phenomena of, of Scripture? Right. Well, uh, I think the easiest way may be to use a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus teaches us to pray to God, our Father who is in heaven. Uh, what makes it right to call God our Father? Mm-hmm. Well, God is not a human father who has a male body and is married, that kind of thing. So what do we mean by when we say God is Father? Well, we mean it by way of analogy. But it's important, I think, to see that actually the analogy originates in the other direction. Yes. God is the father of his son from all eternity. We were introduced to this language of father and son, and the father sent the son into the world to bring us life. And that implies that the father is father of the son even before he was sent. So there's an eternal relationship of father and son. So that's the actual origin origin. Uh, of the appropriateness of our Mm -hmm. calling God our Father. But now when God makes human beings, he makes them in the image of God. So there can be human fathers, and Adam is the first one. So he has a son. Well, he has two sons, Cain and Abel, and then a third one, Seth. So, uh, and Seth, it's specifically said that Seth is uh, in the image and likeness of God. That's uh, Genesis 5.3. So that's both analogy and anthropomorphism. And this anthropomorphism in the sense that God is described in the way that we would describe human beings and their actions. But it's an analogy because we don't bring God, if we know the scripture, we don't bring God down to our level and say, if he's father, he must be father in exactly the same way that Adam is a father, exactly the same way as a human father. I think this is built into God's way of giving us language. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that we invent afterwards. (laughs) But language is a gift from God. It's not something actually any human being invents from scratch. Mm -hmm. Even if you invent a whole new language, you do it by analogy with the languages you already know. (laughs) Yeah, Donald Davidson makes that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so... Uh, the second example is uh, the father loves the son. This is indicated in in a number of passages, but John uh, 
3, 34, 35 is one of them. For the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. That is in a context where the, the purpose is going to be so that the son reveals the father on earth. But the origin is eternal. So the father always loved the son, even if there hadn't been a world. Yeah. There would have been an eternal love. But what do we mean by love? Do we mean exactly the same thing as we experience in terms of a father's love for a human son or father's uh, love for his uh, or a man's love for his wife, the wife's love for her husband, the love of friends between one another? All those are only reflections yeah. on a creaturely level of God's love. Mm-hmm. So analogy is built into the word love. And I don't think you can conceive of human love except if God is bringing it about, if God is at work by by special grace or by common grace. Even among unbelievers, he gives them blessings so that unbelievers sometimes can be good examples of human love. But where does that love come from? It comes because God is empowering them. And so his love is displayed in human love. You can't separate out as if the word love could mean merely human love because there's no such thing. It's God is present uh, even in the human manifestations. So so my point is that's another example, and you can go again and again to examples in the Bible itself. Uh, So the, the language of God causing things, the language of God having plans, the language of God being a king, mm-hmm. uh, all those things, when you explore them, involve analogies between God as a personal God and human beings who are made in his image. Yeah. But it, but God constructed it just that way so that it makes sense and we can rely on this being a true description of God. Yeah, that's really helpful. And that's that's been helpful for me uh, in, in my own theology and thinking through Anthropomorphism, uh, anthropomorphism, and all that. Uh, but I, I wonder. I sometimes I, I take things too far. I grab a tool and I just want to run with it. I wonder: um, is there still room for for metaphor? So, like, is Jesus being the lion of the tribe tribe of Judah? Is that an analogical predication of Jesus, or is that like a metaphorical um, uh, predication? It's both. I think. Okay. A metaphor relies on analogy. Right, there has to be some similarity between a lion, let's say his his fierceness or his bravery yeah. or his power, right? And that's why mm. the statement that, that Jesus is a lion of the tribe of Judah, that's why it works. Yeah. Because it invites us to go out and say, well, now how is the lion like the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's it's like and unlike, right? There's going yeah. to be areas of similarity and areas of dissimilarity. So metaphors, I think, are an example of one kind of analogy. Okay. Okay. And and I think something that's been really helpful for me, uh, as I get pressed by my philosopher friends, uh, they want to say, well, you know, if we if we have, if we're left with only, because they want to denigrate uh, analogical knowledge, and they really like univocal uh, knowledge and language, if we don't have u- univocity, then we're left uh, in skepticism. Gordon Clark makes this point, or tries to make this point against Van Til. But what what you're saying and what Van Til is saying, what what this understanding Bavink, uh, is that an analogical predication is a literal predication, but not a univocal predication. Is that is that right? Is that fair? 
Well, <laughs> the trouble is the word literal means different things to different people. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I would say it can be true. If we say God is our Father, is that true or is that not? Mm. And I'd say it is. How yeah. do we know? Because Jesus told us, right? Mm. <laughs> it's that right. simple. Yeah. Now, can we penetrate to the very bottom? Can mm. we specify with infinite precision just what is analogous and what is not similar mm. when, to human fatherhood? And the answer is no, but we don't need to. Yeah. We can we can live in this world mm. with the knowledge that God has given us. Yeah. But that involves trust. You see, and I think one of the things that that uh Western philosophy has been after is to have a, almost a divine vision of truth and of reality so that you can guarantee it merely in of yourself. Yeah. And you don't need to trust anything outside yourself. Yeah. Well, that's for rebellion. You need to trust God. <laughs> yeah. I haven't thought of it that way. That's that's really helpful. That that brings us um that brings us to Aristotle. There's been a, a big resurgence of uh, Aristotelianism or neo-Aristotelianism in theology and even in philosophy. Uh, and you talked about uh, Aristotle's uh, categories. And I just wonder um for those who are hearing that and are encouraged by that or excited about that, go go read the book. We can't go through all of uh, what Dr. Poitras said about the categories. But uh, Dr. Poitras, what are we to make? What, what is a, a Christian today? What do we make of uh, Aristotle? Is he good? Is he all good? Is he all bad? Is he somewhere in the middle? How, how should the Christian believer think of him and his categories? Yeah, well, he's mixed. Hmm. Uh, after the fall into sin, beginning with Adam, the relationship between God and man is disrupted. Mm-hmm. And that, and we're meant to do all our reasoning and all our thinking in communion with God. Right. I think people often do not understand, look, this is going to be disruptive, even of thinking. It's not simply, oh, I go out and let's say with like, uh, like, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Okay, so that's a sin. That's a kind of sin that anybody can understand. Mm -hmm. But you can sin against God in your thinking Mm -hmm. when you try to be God, which is virtually what Adam and Eve did. They said, we want to set our own standards. In effect, we're not willing to trust God. So that it's deeply corrupting. And that's true of all of us. It isn't simply Aristotle. Oh, he's one of us. He's a fellow human being. Uh, but he isn't as bad as he could be. Yeah. So there's a thing called common grace, uh, which Vantil talks a good deal about. Mm-hmm. It means that people, if they were really consistently in rebellion, they would they would fall into some deep kind of skepticism. Or, uh, but but they don't fall. Uh, they don't uh, follow the consequences of their own rebellion to the very end. Right. Uh, God restrains the evil that is in the heart. And so, and he gives them, give good, continues to give, give good gifts. Jesus talks about, he sends the, the, uh, the rain and the sun upon the just and the unjust. Right. Uh, well, praise the Lord. We ought to thank him, right? <laughs> that he's, he's good. 
and he gives good gifts, including to people who don't deserve it. Well, none of us deserves it. Aristotle didn't deserve it. So what I find in Aristotle is it's a mixture of good and bad. You can see this even in his discussion of the prime mover. And I talk about this just a little bit in my book. Mm -hmm. But the prime mover has a number of there's a number of ways that Aristotle describes and you think this is God. He's called good. He's called mind. He's eternal. He's the the uh, the last cause back. Yeah. So you think, wow, you know, uh, but then you dig a little deeper and you see that this prime mover is along with other uh, unmoved movers. There are something like there's some 40 some of them altogether, each of which is eternal, and the motions of the heavens are eternal, so he hasn't got a proper doctrine of creation. He's compromised the uniqueness of God, and and this God, this prime mover, thinks only of himself, yeah. not really related to the world. So there's, there's all kinds of corruption. You think, uh, this is some kind of confused mixture of yeah pieces of truth you see nobody really escapes god completely yeah there's pieces of truth and yet the entire context is still corrupted so i don't recommend that people read aristotle and swallow him i think he has Mm. to be read really critically not that there aren't some good things they're pieces yeah so it's very it's a very difficult challenge yeah yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, yeah, th- that's really helpful because I think that that also that keeps us on the on the straight path of yes, God has revealed Himself in nature, and thus Aristotle can have some truth. Because uh, if he didn't have any, then it'd be like, well, how can God hold him responsible for um, for he should he should know God, right? So we see that he should know God, and his his mind works really well. But also we see the doctrine of total depravity that his his reasoning about god is not it's not perfect like it ought to be um and because of sin um dr Porches, i wonder there's this kind of debate about um the trinity being a truth of revelation but not being a truth of general uh, a truth of special revelation not of general revelation and and this kind of brings us to your multi-perspectivalism um, what john frame dr frame calls um uh, uh I can't think of it right now. Um, try perspectivalism, but um, does the does your perspectivalism does that afford us general revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity? And I think maybe specifically with uh, your analogy of communication. Well, I think there there are reflections of the Trinity all over in the world. Okay. But the reason why I think so is because God has told me things about himself in the Bible. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to say, well, what would happen if there were only general revelation? Because God never intended that there would only be general revelation. He started speaking to Adam yeah. even before the fall. Yeah. And, and uh, I may have mentioned earlier, I think the verbal communication is a really core aspect of our personal communion with God. So it would have proved central even apart from the fall. Mm. And so God would have progressively revealed his, his nature, which includes the Trinity. But if you look at the Bible and the way it's actually been done, 
uh, Adam did fall into sin, which made a huge problem, but it took God centuries. Uh, he was a patient God, uh, and it's only in the New Testament that the doctrine of the Trinity comes into full blossom. Yeah. It's kind of like it's there in the Old Testament, but it's the bud. <laughs> right? mm, and, right. and you're not really sure if you just have that much, what's the bud to become in terms yeah. of, a, of a fuller revelation? Yeah. Yeah, that that's fantastic. So um, you've mentioned before how, how important uh, language is. And when I first started reading your works, I was I was in this weird spot where I, I was kind of mad at philosophy for turning to language analysis. And so I was kind of frustrated with everyone talking about language all the time. But then, you know, through your works and the work of uh, Dr. Van Hooser, I, I came to see how important uh, the word actually is, at the, the spoken word, how, how important speech is. And then I came upon your analogy of communication for the Trinity. Uh, and I wonder, could, could you share that with us? Um, how is how speech is an is analogous to the action of of the triune God? Uh, well, the principal starting point is John one one. Mm. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, as you read through the later parts of that chapter, you find out that this Word is the same Word that became incarnate, mm. and we know Him as Jesus Christ. But He existed before he took on flesh, yeah. right? So that's foundational. But why is he called the Word? Yeah. See, because that suggests this analogy of communication already. Mm -hmm. And it's reinforced by the fact that the context there alludes to Genesis 1. The phrase, in the beginning, it's already pretty obvious, right? But then mm -hmm. the next verses talk about all things were made through him. They were right. made, they were created. So you go back to Genesis and you see God speaking. Uh, let there be light. He said, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's not the only time that God spoke. Mm -hmm. So John is indicating that more fundamental than any of those individual speeches is the exhaustive speech of God, which is eternal, namely the second person. So that's the the basis for what I call the analogy with communication. Mm -hmm. It's an analogy because we are made in the image of God. We can communicate, right? So on the level of human beings. And and you see that with Adam. He names the animals, right? Well, that's using language. Yeah. So if we think of communication on a human level, there's a speaker, and then there's the speech, right? There's the linguistic verbal material that he sends out. And then there's a recipient, typically, uh, a hearer of that speech. Mm -hmm. And there's breath as well, by which, or some medium, but yeah. your oral communication will be breath. There's breath that takes that speech to its destination. Well, in John 1, uh, there's no indication uh, directly of the role of the Holy Spirit. But mm -hmm. if you look at that what happens in the creation of the world and in recreation, the Holy Spirit is sometimes represented as being like the breath, yeah. the breath of God. And in one passage, at least in John 16, 13, I believe it is, he's represented as the hearer of God's word, mm. 
Well, those two things are not so far apart because it's the breath that takes the word to yeah. the ear. Yeah. So, so I believe then that God himself in the Bible is inviting us to see an analogy between human communication and divine communication. And then within divine communication to see an analogy between that communication by which he created the light. Yeah. He said, let there be light, there was light. Right. And the eternal communication, which is then always there, namely, in the beginning was the word. Yeah. Right. And the word is expressed in the Holy Spirit as the breath of God and as the recipient of, of the speech of God eternally. Now that's very mysterious, mm -hmm. but it's also significant because it means that language didn't start with us. Yeah. And it means that language, as God gifts it to us, yeah. can be uh, a vehicle for revealing deep things about God because it corresponds to who he actually is yeah. in himself. Right. Um, Dr. Portress, is this, um, I think that's so huge, that's so foundational. Um, is, is language um, the way that we, maybe there's multiple ways, but is language important for our, our uh, for the Imago Dei? Is this how we, is this what sets us apart from uh, the squirrels and the dogs because they, they can't use verbal language the way we can? Or, or is, there, is there something more to it that I'm missing? Well, I believe that's one aspect. Mm -hmm. When Genesis talks about, uh, let us make man our image after our likeness. The thing that's going to, be there is so each each of those phrases is I believe qualifies the other image and likeness. Yeah. The likeness is particularly evident that he's saying, I'm gonna make a creature. So mm -hmm. he's not going to be another God. Yeah. I'm gonna make a creature, but he's gonna be like God. He's gonna be like God in a host of ways. If you okay. want to know what ways, then go out and read the rest of what I say. <laughs> right? He's not gonna he's not gonna say it all there. Right. The, the first thing that's obvious is God exercises power and dominion in creating the world. Yeah. And he commissions human beings to exercise dominion, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, God has filled it. You know, he's filled it with creatures, right? Yeah. So human beings are imitating God in those ways and subduing, right? God is, has, uh, has ordered the world according to his power. Mm -hmm. And then when Adam is it starts off, he starts naming the animals right. where God has given names to things. So you already have not one thing, but a host of things that are parallel. Yeah. But don't let's not miss uh, one of the fundamental aspects of it, which is personal communion between God and man. Yeah. We can know God. We can hear his voice. We can speak back to him. Mm -hmm. We can worship him. Uh, you know, we can be in awe of him. There are responses that we do that exceed uh, what other uh, earthly creatures can do. And all of those ways, I think, reflect the fact that he has made us distinct and he's made us like himself, yeah. but yet on a creaturely level. Yeah. Hey, man, that, that's that's so great. Uh it's such a such a huge gift to be able to speak and commune and, and to be like God uh, in in that way. And I think that also, just like we talked about earlier, it definitely opens up uh, the the doctrine of analogy, 
you know, that that there's this creator creature distinction we're like God, but even that we're an image of him. So we're not, you know, we're not univocal with him. We're not in the same order of being or anything like that. Um, and I, I think what your approach and Dr. Frame's approach has helped me see is that there is a role for like natural theology. I know that's kind of a loaded word, but it's, it's in a, uh, a confirming role rather than like an establishing role. We have the, we have scripture and we have that God is the triune God. And from that truth, we can look out at reality and see how reality confirms the truth of, of divine revelation. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment of what, what you guys are doing? Yes. John Frame has a recent book. And now off the top of my head, I can't remember the exact title, but it's essentially a theology of nature. Mm, yeah. But the way he does it is to go to the Bible and say, let's see what the Bible teaches. See, he's not just saying, well, I'm going to throw the Bible in the trash can, mm -hmm. and I'm just going to let my, uh, my own mind run, right? But he's going to let the Bible teach him mm -hmm. how nature testifies to the character of God. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah. But that... The, the prior thing is that he's put himself on the the tracks of special yeah. revelation, right? Yeah, right. So that he won't get derailed. And then there's much to say, I think, yeah. much to appreciate, much to praise God for in the natural world. And my book on redeeming science, I try to do that a little bit too, of, of say science ought to be blossoming and you don't just be full of people who are, so excited about the goodness and and wonder and wisdom of God because of what they're discovering in science and right. and the the tragedy is of course that it tends to be the opposite right yeah. that the atmosphere of one is where science can replace God which it can't mm -hmm. we we needn't get into that but yeah. rather than seeing it as a human project where we're discovering all these neat things yeah. about the wisdom of God. Yeah, that's that's so great. Yeah, I we could get into a lot of that. So, so for the listeners, Doctor Poitras has wrote an insane and uh, insane insane amount of books, including Redeeming Science, Redeeming Philosophy, Chance and the Sovereignty of God. All these great books where he's doing exactly what he just talked about, Doctor Frame doing, taking scripture and then applying it to different fields and saying, look, and and, and actually getting new insights into these fields, which I think is so fantastic, which continues to confirm the the veracity the truth of scripture uh especially by how it can open up all these different fields um dr portraits this is something i just uh have been have been wanting to ask you forever um you i believe you started out in mathematics is that right yes i actually got a doctorate in mathematics where, where was that from it was from harvard university yeah which is just fantastic insane um how how does language and then you went on and you did some ling linguistics with Kenneth Pike uh, and you wrote this logic book that I, I love. How what's the relationship in your mind between logic and language and math? How, how do those is is one more foundational than the other? Well, they all originate in God. Mm -hmm. uh, as usual, we're going to have to say, well, there are two levels, right? Okay. There's God's knowledge of Himself, and then there's human explorations, which can be true but which never plumb to the very bottom of yeah. who God is. That's true in all three of these fields. So we already talked about language, that the starting point for human language is God speaking in himself. In mm -hmm. the beginning was the word, 
right? So that's the divine level of language. And then, of course, when God creates the world, right, there's particular speeches, which I think is, are reflections of that eternal speech. Particular speeches like God saying, let there be light. And then we speak to God, God speaks to us. It's glorious yeah. when you think about it. Uh, so all of that originates with the divine level, but we can have genuine understanding as we receive God's speech. Yeah. Well, logic, similarly, logic, the original or original logic, I believe, is in God, and particularly the second person of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. That same verse, in the beginning was the word, the underlying Greek word is logos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is etymologically related to our word logic. And there are people who wanted to translate it in the beginning was logic and logic was with God and logic was God. I think that's, it's one aspect of it, but it's not the main thing. The main thing is this tie with Genesis, right? Because that's that's the uh, connection that is made in those verses in their context when it says in the beginning. If you go back to Genesis, speech is the main thing that you see, God yeah. speaking. Yeah, he but spoke if you watch, yeah, but if you watch what God spoke, it show, clearly shows his wisdom. It sure. shows that he's consistent with himself, right? And he's got a plan that he's thought through. So you do see that there is, as it were, a logic to creation. Yeah which is derivative from the underlying speech of God. So I do think it's God's self-consistency and it's the Father's love for the Son and the Son for the Father in the Spirit that is the foundation for the consistency that we see in our own minds and in the world. So that's logic. And math, the origin of that is that God is not only one God, but he is three persons. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, I really like that. I, I think that emphasis is great because, you know, yeah, Gordon Clark wrote this whole book on, on uh, tr- the Johannian uh, Logos and trying to, trying to translate that as logic. And so, but that's not the, the, the proper emphasis because it's speech going back to Genesis, but you do find logic because God created a world and not a not world at the same time in the same way. And, and just like you said, as well as wisdom. Uh, with mathematics, uh, do, do you find... This is super speculative. I'm sorry if, if it's going off track here, but um, is is mathematics uh, derived from logic, or or do you do you say no? It's it's grounded in the oneness and threeness of God. Yes, uh, <clears throat> I talk about this actually a little bit in my book, Redeeming Mathematics, mm-hmm. because <clears throat> out in the world, people who do not believe in the biblical God. There are several attempts at accounting for the mystery of where mathematics comes from and what it is, in fact. And one of those is called logicism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bertrand Russell and Albert North Whitehead tried, uh, it was a tremendous project they had, trying to show that you could derive all of mathematics from starting a few starting logical principles. Is that Principia Mathematica? Yeah, that's right. Three volumes. So it's a a massive kind of project. uh, But 
actually, it, it, it's very illuminating, again, by common grace, right? A lot of insights right. of the relationships between logic and mathematics. Uh, but most people looking at it in hindsight think that it showed rather the reverse because they had to have an axiom of infinity. Yeah. Uh, they had to add that to the more strictly logical axioms. And uh, that is a way of saying basically that that number is irreducible, right? Yeah. You've got to have it there in your axioms or you'll never get it out at the other end. Right. Okay. So, yes, yeah, so we're not we're not going to be uh, logicists here, um, but but logic, math and in uh, language all find their root in the triune God. Right. Yeah. And so I'd say there's a there's a grain of truth in logicism oh. and in the other alternatives. One of them is uh, intuitionism, mm -hmm. where mathematics starts with with intuitions of counting. Mm. And another one is empiricism, where it starts with with objects in the world that are distinct from one another. So you think of three apples, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but actually, within a Christian worldview, those three three or those three elements are correlative, and they're all, all three of them originate in God. Yeah. So you don't have to have them in competition. Yes. Which is what happens in a non-Christian world. You have to take something other than God and make it the source of everything. You have to, in effect, have a substitute creator. Yeah. But in a Christian worldview, the logic comes from God's self-consistency, right? That's more of a normative uh, element in mathematics. Yeah. The world comes from God's creative activity, and that's what Frame calls a situational perspective. Can that be the empiricism uh, view of mathematics? And the intuitionist, that's more an existentialist view yes. because it starts with the human mind. I love that. That's so helpful. That's that's why I can't get away from the perspectives because it's so helpful. Um, and even seeing that while non-Christians, um, they have they, they, they want to pick sides and they, they have to say, well, it's this or it's this. We get to say, no, it's all three. There's truth and falsity in, in these non-Christian views. But we get to have all three of them. We get to, because we're Christians, because we're looking at the world um, based on God's revelation, we get to have more than they get to have, which is just, I love that. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Poitras, thanks. Uh, we've, we've gone over over an hour here. Thank you so much for, for stopping by uh, and, and explaining your book. Again, for the listeners, it's The Mystery of the Trinity. It's, it just came out, a, trin, a tri, Trinitarian Approach to the Attributes of God. And Dr. Poitras does a lot of really creative theology, and yet it's it's uh, utterly orthodox theology. Um, I, I really appreciate this man, all the work that he's done. Do go check out his other books. Uh, Dr. Poitras, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, I, I appreciate your inviting me. Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.